1: Blog Talk Radio.
0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of the Good Life Podcast with Mike Sefosnick. First off, let me apologize for my voice. We all know my love for Kentucky basketball runs so deep. It's one of the most important things in my life, sadly. And we all know that Kentucky came to the Barclays Center this Saturday. They really didn't play up to my standards or anyone else's standards. And I might have done a little bit of yelling at the game sitting eight rows from the floor, thanks to tickets from my good friend Cameron Mills. But we're not gonna talk about Big Blue Nation invading New York City tonight. We'll save that for the next show. wanna talk about some books. At the beginning of the year, I made a goal, not a resolution, to read 52 books in 52 weeks. I'm 50 books down, I have two to go. So when I was looking at my list, unbeknownst to me, two of my last four books were written by the same author. I've read maybe three or four of his other books, but I want to focus on two of them tonight. He's lived an extremely fascinating life. Retired detective sergeant from the LAPD, best-selling author, privileged and honored to introduce to my show right now, the great author, Joseph Lombok. Joseph, welcome to the show, my friend.
1: Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me.
0: Such a fascinating life. Let's start right away with your time with the LAPD. Why police work?
1: Well, uh, when I was a young kid, my dad was a cop in uh, East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a little town 10, mile, 10 miles outside of Pittsburgh. So I don't know. I guess I just always liked cops. <laughs> and uh, after I got out, of the, I joined the Marines when I was 17, and and uh, when I got out of the Marines, I went to college on the GI Bill, and I thought I wanted to be a teacher, and yet it didn't The thought of it didn't turn me on. I just kept thinking about police work. And the LAPD was the best police department around here. We had moved to California, you know. And uh, so um, I decided to take the test. And from then on, I, I just discovered that it was a life for me. I think doing good police work is the most fun that you will ever have in your whole life. And I've written that. And a
0: couple of books.
1: What do you miss the most
0: about being a police officer or a sergeant? What do you miss the most about the job?
1: Um, I think uh, investigation. Uh, You know, I did my share of patrol, like everybody. But I think being a detective uh, was what I really liked. And when I'm writing books, whether it's fiction or nonfiction... I interview a lot of people. I use my experiences, used them up long ago. And so when I write fiction, a novel, I interview fifty cops, that's five zero cops for each novel that I write. And when I write nonfiction, a true story, uh, there's no telling how many people I'll interview depends on the on the story. <clears throat> but when I'm doing it, whether I, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. I feel as though I'm investigating because I'm asking questions and trying to get people to reveal themselves to me, Uh, even if it's cops, you know. um, They're not so eager to just spill their guts, and I need them to do that. So uh, I've learned with the male cops, I generally have to buy them four or five drinks, but with the female cops, they just have to smell the cork and they tell me everything I want to know. <laughs>
0: when you first started writing, I guess as a hobby, when did you legitimately think that you have a, a secondary career here? Was there a time?
1: Um, I started writing after I was on the job about 10 years. I, I was going to college uh, most of my time on the job. Uh, if I was working nights, I'd go and d- take day classes. If I was working days... I'd take night classes, and uh, um, I, I just started getting the itch after about 10 years. And all I wanted to do was publish a short story. I thought, if I could have one short story published somewhere, that would be a great honor, and that would uh, sort of validate uh, everything I'm doing uh, in terms of uh, college. I was I was majoring in literature. Why literature? It's the only thing. That I really liked. I liked reading stories, so I sent I sent short stories <clears throat> to every cheap magazine you could imagine, and everybody rejected me. So one day I decided, okay, I'm going to send one to a, uh, a magazine that actually pays money that people read. And this was back around uh, 1970, 69, about 70. And so I sent I sent the story to Playboy, and they sent it right back to me with a rejection, and I thought, oh, they didn't read it. They didn't read it. It was too quick, or they would have realized, you know, the quality of my work. So I sent it right back to them, (laughs) and I got another rejection letter, and this one said, it's no better this time than it was last time, schmuck. So I I tried to, you know, I, I, I saved that dear schmuck letter for a long time and then many years later, when I had a bestseller that play, and, and uh, Playboy wanted to excerpt one of my novels in the magazine, uh, I, I looked all over for that letter, but I couldn't find it.
0: <laughs> now, let me ask you this. There are a few books that when people ask me, oh, recommend a good book for this, I always recommend The Onion Field. It's fascinating on so many levels. Now, you know what? Can you give me and everyone listening a brief summary of that incredible book?
1: well the onion field is a is a true story a non fiction and by the way, the movie's good. If your audience would like to get the d v d and see that old movie, it's very good uh, uh Ted Danson played his first role uh in that movie that's his first role and uh James Woods was in it, and I think his second role that he ever played and it it was it was quite good because I wrote it, and I put up money uh with others to To produce the damn thing, which is is not a smart thing to do, but that's what we did. And um, I'm I'm pretty proud of the movie too. The movie and the book have five important words in the beginning, and those words are, "This is a true story, and you can believe it." And in the movies you see nowadays, they they always say, "This is based on a true story. This is suggested by a true story." Uh uh-uh. uh. The onion field says. This is a true story. Uh, it's a story of two cops, LAPD cops working out of uh, Hollywood station, Hollywood Division, and uh, one uh, busy weekend night, they were working a plain clothes detail, like plain clothes on patrol. You know, they're not in uniform, they're wearing suit and tie. But they're really doing patrol work, looking for felonies. We call it in those days the felony car, and they're looking for more serious crimes to bust. And they see a, a couple of uh, uh, guys that look suspicious in a little little Ford coupe, and they pull them over. And the two guys were ex-convicts named Gregory Powell and Jimmy Lee Smith. And uh, Powell was a white guy. Smith's uh, uh, a mixed race guy, a black guy, but he, he he's pretty mixed race. In fact, uh, they described him as a as a Latino instead of black. And um the cops pulled them over. Ian Campbell was the uh was the, the uh, senior cop in that car and he went around to the driver's side to to uh you know, get some ID, see what's going on, and Powell came out with a thirty eight boom, just like that, real fast, and got the drop on Ian, spun him around back, got him by the back of the collar and demanded that his partner Carl Hedinger drop his gun because by then Carl had, had had drawn his gun and was holding it on Jimmy Lee Smith and uh Carl had a big decision to make uh, what to do what to do you know uh it's it's like a mexican standoff and uh Ian Campbell who had a gun in his back said uh, uh he's got a gun in my back Carl give him yours and so Carl gave his gun uh, to Jimmy Lee Smith. And and the two uh, thugs, they were on their way to pull a, a liquor store robbery. And the two thugs put the two uh, plainclothes cops in their little Ford, stuck uh, Carl Hedinger in the back behind the front seat down in the well. And the other three were in the front seat. Uh, and this is in 1963, remember, you can imagine a little Ford coupe. Of and they drove the car from Hollywood uh, up to Bakersfield, California which was about 90 minutes away and uh, it was there when they, they smooth-talked the cops all the way, you know, like, we just have to get away we're going to drop you off out in the sticks here uh, and when they dropped them off uh, uh, they all got out of the car all four they didn't just kick the cops out and drive off as they said they would. Now, Jimmy Lee Smith was the follower. He's the weak guy. He'd been a drug addict most of his life. He'd never been arrested for anything violent. Gregory Lee Powell was uh, a pure sociopath. Well, they both were sociopaths, but Powell was definitely the A personality, volatile, a little crazy guy. And he had something else in mind. And when he had the two cops out there with their hands in the air in the middle of this onion field, which is where they pulled off the dirt road, in the middle of an onion field, under the under the moon with their hands up, he said, "Have you ever heard of the Little Lindbergh Law, which is the kidnapping law, federal law that made it uh, a death penalty uh, to to kidnap uh, for ransom with bodily harm?" And Ian Campbell said, "Yes." And Gregory Powell shot him in the mouth. Oh. And when he went down, both both of the both of the thugs started firing rounds into him. And Carl Hettinger ran. And then they fired at him uh, and chased him, but he got away. Now the story of the onion field uh, uh, isn't only what I just described. That's the beginning of it. The real story of the onion field is a story of uh of uh st- uh, uh stress uh, <laughs> with, uh PT- PTSD exactly. uh, it's it's a it's a, st- it's a story of PTSD which wasn't told back in those days you know i wrote that book a long time ago it was published in 1973 and there wasn't much said about PTSD uh until the vietnam war made it really well known And certainly there wasn't much said about PTSD as it pertains to a cop. But Carl Hettinger did get away. Uh, He did survive, and the the two crooks uh, were—oh, Powell left Smith—sorry, Smith Smith left Powell behind and drove the car off. Powell was left out there in the onion field, too, with a dead body. Uh, Both both, uh, thugs were arrested. And uh, the onion field is really about what happened to Carl Hedinger, being made to feel guilty on his, uh, by the police department for surrendering his gun. Uh, you know, uh, people with 2020 20 hindsight, uh, Monday morning quarterbacks, second-guessed him, and uh, he felt incredibly guilty, and it it pretty much almost destroyed him. I mean, he was suicidal, and everything else. And he eventually uh, began, uh, became a kleptomaniac, stealing ridiculous stuff from every store he walked into, which was really guilt crying out for punishment. He wanted to get arrested. He wanted to get fired from the police department. He wanted to be punished. So it's a classic story of PTSD. Uh, and that's what interested me, because I, I was a cop then, and I saw when Edinger got fired. I said, wait a minute, this guy's no thief. You know, uh, he's stealing this ridiculous stuff.
0: There's yeah, something he's... wrong in that guy's
1: head, you know. And so I became interested in the story way back then, uh, No, uh, way, way back in 63.
0: You, uh, The book was written 10 years after the incident happened. Were you worried that the book maybe would, because um, Hettenberg, he seemed like he was very fragile. Were you worried that maybe the book would put him over the edge, or did you consult with him? About the book and stuff, you were you working on Absolutely,
1: about that? absolutely. I I I spent a few of the worst days in my life after I, I after Carl Hettinger had been sent. Uh, I'd sent him uh, uh, the galley proof, the printer proof copy of the book before publication for him to read, and 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 I didn't hear from him right away. And oh. I didn't hear from him a week, and then ten days, and I knew how fragile he was. Uh, psychologically fragile and I sweated that out I thought oh my god I mean if that guy kills himself now I'll be the one with PTSD and uh, after almost two weeks I got a phone call from him and he said oh I'm sorry I didn't get back sooner my wife and I were on vacation with the kids and we went off camping and uh, you know this is the day's well, not everybody had cell phones, <laughs> and uh, and when I heard, uh, and I said to him, "Okay, Carl, what did you think of the book?" And then I got a better review than I ever got from the New York Times. Uh, he said to me, "It didn't make me feel bad." Wow! Wow! That's pretty deep. Yeah.
0: Now you were a police officer at the time you said you talked about how difficult his coworkers made him feel and the job itself. Did you receive any backlash or what people have said with you that you kind of put it out there, like other police officers?
1: you mean after the book came out? yes, after the book came out it was it was completely accepted by the rank and file of the police department uh, a a couple of the brass you know some of the brass who 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 uh, didn't didn't investigate uh, when Carl Hettinger was accused of these ridiculous thefts and, and uh, was given a chance to uh, resign or be fired, and then, you know, left him adrift where he, where he damn near uh, killed himself. Uh, th- th- you know, there was criticism then, and there was, you know, finger pointing, well, uh, I told him not to feel bad. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, of course, you know, of course. Yeah. Yeah, right. After you, after you, uh, after you threaten a guy with jail and, and 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 you know and let him resign from the police department in disgrace, uh, you know, I, I told them not to feel bad. A couple of them said uh, the brass, but the rank and file went for it all the way. They saw that this was something different. This was the first real study of post traumatic stress disorder uh, as it applies to police officers. Uh, and um, they they were forward 100%. Were
0: you working that night, or
1: did you work during the day? Yes,
0: oh, yes, yes.
1: Okay. I was working the night uh, when Carl Edinger disappeared. Uh, uh, Carl Carl and Ian Campbell when they disappeared from their from their felony car in Hollywood. Uh, I was working the next division south, which was Wilshire Division. I was a, I was a vice cop then. And I remembered, I remembered the frantic, uh, the frantic radio broadcasts, and everybody uh, in Hollywood, and maybe even some of the guys from my division, uh, Wilshire, were up there searching. You know, those cops were gone, and that car was parked in the street, and it, it was a, it, it was a, uh, a pretty frantic time.
0: Now I was so intrigued. I forgot where, whatever it was that you. Interviewed both of the killers in jail. What stuck out with interviewing them or talking to them? Any remorse? Like, how does how fascinating was that speaking to them?
1: Oh, it was it was it was very interesting. I interviewed uh, Jimmy Lee Smith in Folsom Prison and uh, Gregory Powell in San Quentin. And uh, well, I you know I, I've been a cop a long time. By the time I interviewed them in '72, uh, and uh, you know I knew sociopaths. And so I wasn't expecting remorse. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, I didn't get any rem- remorse. I mean, uh, they might fake it a little bit, but I knew they were faking it. But what Jimmy Lee Smith gave me was very valuable. He gave me a manuscript of oh, a couple hundred pages long, maybe two, maybe 250 pages, typewritten that he had done telling his story of, of the Onion Field case. Uh, he told of how he met Gregory Powell, uh, how, how they got together, how they became partners and so on. And uh, right up to the time that they were on death row, they were sentenced to death, but then the death penalty was overturned in California and then they got life. Uh, but they were on death row together. He told me that, you know, he told the whole story and I gave him credit for that, uh, in the forward to the book and the acknowledgement page. And it was very valuable, very valuable, because uh, I got stuff from them that I couldn't have gotten in a short uh, uh, prison interview. You know, and it, it, it was really uh, uh, I, I was I felt like I was put on earth to write that book. <laughs> I
0: think I, <laughs> I have to tell you I'm forgetting I'm even interviewing you, the way you're describing the book, and I just want to sit down and just shut my eyes and listen to you. You're beyond fascinating. Now, before I talk about the blooding, I have a few like. Personal author questions: Is there a story that you wish you wrote about, but for one reason or another you never did?
1: Um, there there were a few uh, n- uh, true stories, nonfiction stories that I I just I, I I couldn't I couldn't get the job for one reason or another. Uh, let's see. Uh, one of them. Uh one of them involved uh uh a uh, a doctor, uh he was a Green Beret and he, he wiped out his family, his his wife and his two children and blamed it on uh back in those days, blamed it blamed it on a hippie group like the ones uh, the Charles Manson gang.
0: Was that Fatal Vision?
1: Yes, it became right. Fatal Vision, but I was I was on that before uh, before uh, uh, you know, the author uh, uh, McGinnis McGinnis Joe McGinnis, yes. and and I got to know Joe McGinnis uh, when he got onto the story. Uh, fi- finally, the problem was that uh, MacDonald, the the doctor, didn't quite trust me. He saw too much cop in me, and he. <laughs> And he just he he just didn't quite trust me. He he wanted to uh, he wanted the story told his way. And when Joe McGinnis came uh, to interview me uh, after he found out after he got the job and found out that I had interviewed uh, McDonald in prison uh, quite a bit before he got onto it, you know, I, I remember him to this day. I remember Joe McGinnis, who's by the way passed he's passed away. Uh, I remember him saying to me, "Well, y- you actually think." That he did it, and I said, "Oh yeah, yeah, he did it." <laughs> of he did it, and, jo- and Joe said, "Oh my God!" He said that. I mean, you know, slaughtered his family like that. He'd be, you know, he's a, he's he's an Ivy League trained doctor. You know, he he he'd be as evil as Hitler. I still remember Joe saying that, and I said, "No, Joe, I, I don't even judge people as evil." uh or good I, I i use clinical terms he's a sociopath and i'm going to tell you what a sociopath is and and about the absence of superego or that thing that you call conscience and so i sat with joe and i sort of i sort of uh gave him, gave him a little pr- uh primer on on sociopathy and uh he went off and wrote a damn good book and and McGinnis hated him for it because I'm sorry, McDonald hated McGinnis for it, because Dr. McDonald expected McGinnis to do, uh, you know, uh, a little love story about uh, how he was uh, unjustly accused and convicted, and it didn't turn out that way. (laughs) Is is it more difficult for
0: you to write a non-fiction book or a fiction book?
1: I always think of fiction as being my children. And nonfiction as being my stepchildren, uh, or foster children, maybe. Uh, the the fiction, the novels, you know, more of it comes from inside me. And with the nonfiction, I'm more of a investigative reporter or a detective. So that's more outside me. And, and, uh, which is harder to write? I don't know. Yeah. I think that... I I, I think maybe the. Sometimes the fiction is harder to write because uh you know, I know how to do detective work and if I, <laughs> I get a you know, get the story from people, I can generally get it down on paper pretty pretty easily. But, you know, the fiction's got to come from inside and and even though I interview a bunch of cops for the for the novels, still, you know, uh, uh, there's more of me in it. So that's a little harder.
0: Do you ever reread your book? I, I heard a few athletes who don't watch their games uh, actors who don't watch their movies the book is finished gets published do you ever read the book
1: after it's published i've never read one of my books uh really? after they're published no uh for, something has has made me sometimes go to a page to recall something something that's said in a review something that someone asked me in an interview uh has it's uh, has made me go back and read passages and every damn time I do, I see something I wish I could change. You know, I, I could make that better if I could do it now. Uh, and so it's, uh, I don't advise authors going back and reading their books after they're published. It's all, it's almost the same way in, in movies, except, uh, you know, I've written a few movies, and um, except that that's not all me up there, you know, that, that's not all mine. You know, I, I had a... Part to play. I wrote the script, but there were, you know, there were actors, there's director, there's a cinematographer, there's everybody else, you know, scored the mu, mu- the movie with the music, everything. So I can watch those with no problem repeatedly even though I wrote the script.
0: Mhm. How do you know when a book is finished? I hope that's not a silly question, but I'm always curious as an author so many of you guys are a perfectionist. How do you know, like, okay, this book is finished without wanting to add more and more and more onto it?
1: Uh, that's a good question because some guys, some authors just don't know when to quit. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I see it all the time in books that I'm reading. Uh, I, I think it's, you're always better off leaving a little bit unsaid rather than saying too much. So, uh I just uh, I just look for a place where I feel it. I can't even explain how I know. It's just I feel that if I say any more, I'm going to be gilding the lily, you know? It's going to be too much. Icing on the cake. I, come on. Let it go. Push it away. It's not easy to do sometimes, you know? And, and uh, it's just a feeling I have with each book.
0: One of my new favorite books, I just finished it a couple of days ago, was The Blooding. And because oh. you 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 described the onion field just perfectly. Can you describe to everyone listening what the blooding was about? A summary of the book again? Cuz it was you you're leaving me just sitting back here laying down now just fascinated by hearing you talk.
1: Well, The Blooding is probably the first full-length book uh about uh so-called genetic fingerprinting, DNA analysis, whatever you care to call it. Uh when I, when I when I read about the scientific discovery uh, by uh, a a geneticist in in uh, the midlands of england uh in in uh, leicester university i i couldn't believe it you know uh, that that a person could be identified from all other people on the face of the earth on the basis of uh skin tissue hair root uh semen. Uh, even saliva blood of course uh, all of that i mean l- it, like a fingerprint a dna fingerprint i it w- it was hard for me to believe and i started making phone calls to the the police in uh at leicestershire constabulary in the midlands of england and i talked to a detective who was ready to retire over there and i and he knew who i was he'd read some of my books and i i said you know is there an author that's, that's that's on this story because it's it's just too amazing? I think this was in this was in 1988. Yes, he said to me. Yeah, he said to me. No, he said they don't care. They don't get it. And I said, well, I get it. If I if I flew over there, would you and and your uh, detectives cooperate with me and give me interviews? I'd like to write a book about this because they used it in a, in a serial murder case in uh, the, the village of Narborough, uh, not far from the city of Leicester. Uh, and and uh, Enderby and Littlethorpe, three little vi- villages, were were being terrorized by a serial killer who killed a couple of 15-year-old girls and almost got a third one. And he was finally tripped up because of this new science. And so I just... I couldn't wait to get over there when I realized nobody over there wanted to write a book about it. So they treated me very well. I stayed over there a fortnight. For you for you non-Brits, that's 2 weeks. <laughs> and, and and uh and the David Baker, the uh um, the uh who was in charge of the investigation just uh, you know treated me like a fellow cop and even though I'd been gone from the police department for quite a while. treated me wonderfully and gave me access to everything. And uh, I I got a very interesting book out of it, I think, and uh, came came back to uh, California. And I brought a couple of the detectives with me. Uh, and They stayed over here for a week or so uh, and finished up a lot of a lot of information that I still needed you know I interviewed a whole bunch of people over there for that book but I needed more so I brought those two guys back with me and uh, yeah I'm, I'm kind of proud of the book I'm sorry that it never made it to American television they did a version of it in England and I saw it and, you know it, it was it was alright but uh, I wish that one of these days they'd uh, do a version over here and uh, let me write the script <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it's funny in in your summary you actually hit on three questions i want to ask you the first was they were convicted in 88 in 89 the book book is published and my question to you was going to be were you were you nervous or have you ever been nervous that you're doing a story and another author is going to jump the gun rush and put
1: the first book out there does that ever uh, worry you now this was the first time that that ever happened to me you know where it was a current case and it did. Yeah, yeah, it worried me a bit, but I, I had so much access, I thought, hell, uh, let somebody else go ahead and write. They, they didn't have my access, so I'll, I'll have more of the story. By the way, everybody told me that, uh, hell, the cop should have known who the uh, serial killer was from the beginning just by his name, which yeah. was Colin Pitchfork. Now, if that was fiction, I could never have used that name, but it was a true story, and that was his name, Colin Colin Pitchfork. And my other question,
0: which you answered saying you were there for two weeks, two weeks, you got all the interviews, the family, everyone cooperated with you. It It seemed like it was just maybe that was a book you were meant to write. And was that one of the funnest, and of course, the subject isn't fun, but was that one of maybe the most funnest books you get to travel to england travel and they and they wanted you to write the book so was that one of the best experiences you had writing a book it
1: it it, it was one of the it was certainly one of the most exciting, unusual experiences uh but it was it was hard it was cold. I was in a a drafty uh a drafty hotel where you had to keep putting coins in the in the in the radiator you know an old fashioned steam radiator you put coins in and the wind's whistling through the windows I'm freezing at night I have my I have blankets on me and top coat I keep remembering this is the this is the the romantic exciting life of a best selling author <laughs> I'm freezing to death and and then I I'd, I'd have to go out and sometimes just wait around for people and uh, standing on, on corners blowing on my hands because I'm freezing to death and uh, and then persuading them because uh, the Brits are not Yanks. Uh, they're very different than we are. You know, They're very reticent and shy about such things and revealing themselves. They don't like to do that. And so I had to work very hard to get some of them to talk. But I ended up interviewing... Uh, the wife of the serial killer uh and of course uh of course all the cops uh the family uh, I interviewed the the two families of the, the two murdered 15-year-old girls um i interviewed a lot of people and and uh you you have to draw them out uh, they're 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 english they're not american and it it wasn't easy it was a it was a tough book and Listen, you don't need me to praise you, but can I
0: tell you what my favorite thing about the book was? Someone recommended the book to me. I was in a little bookstore here in New York, and I saw it, so I grabbed it, and I was nervous it was going to be so much about science and the fingerprints. You had the perfect amount that you would tell the reader how the DNA thing happened, and like you didn't get so much into science, which made the book so much more enjoyable. And I have to just say, that was like a great job. Were you ever nervous that you were going to make it too scientific?
1: No, because I uh, I, kn- I know that that I I must remain a storyteller. I can't uh, I I can't go off into a field uh, in which I'm not that well versed. So I I did enough science to make it clear, but then I just reverted to being a storyteller. You know, and 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 told the story. Uh, God, I even interviewed the family of the first uh, the first. Young man, to be freed
0: yes, uh, yes.
1: from a murder but, charge. Yeah, 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 yeah they arrested of, the wrong yeah. man. The wrong yeah. man. He was. Yeah, the young village idiot. They arrested him and he confessed under under a stressful interrogation, and they thought they had their killer, and that science set him free before it trapped the guilty guy. So I even interviewed him and his family. I'm going to so, tell you what.
0: You've been on the phone with me now for like 35 minutes. I won't keep you a few more minutes, but I have to tell you, as I'm reading the book, and we'll play spoiler alert, They arrest the guy, he confesses, and he was doing some shady stuff that makes you think, okay, he was involved. I'm looking, I'm like, there's still a lot left in the book. Where are we going with this? So I was questioning you, like, okay, we got the killer. <laughs> he confessed. What goes on next? <laughs> <laughs> now, Joseph, I have a, I have a question, because... And I don't know if you do this on purpose or maybe it's habit. In most of the books I've read, you seem to, and I think I've read somewhere you, you use this word, you humanize the police officer. There's a story within a story because you don't just say, officer so-and-so, you bring up their lives and their backgrounds and the stress. Is that something that you try to do to humanize the police officer? Yeah,
1: yeah. Some people call me the father of the modern police novel. And what they mean is, Instead of being really interested, uh, too much interested, in how the cop acts on the job, I've always been more interested in how the job acts on the cop. So I prefer to get inside the cop's head, which is what I did in the onion field with Carl Hettinger. Uh, I, I want to know what the job's doing to the cop. and uh, that's So I, 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 I flipped the police procedural on its head. And uh, did something different. So I've—that uh, sort of uh, summarizes, I think, uh, the way I write police novels. And Michael, I'm going to have to say goodbye to you now. I've, I've got a, a, an appointment I must get to. I hope you don't mind.
0: No, not at all. I one last thing: our retired lieutenant is coming out to L.A. in a few weeks. I'm going to give him your email address because I know he's fascinated by you and your books, and maybe you guys can eat up for coffee or something, sir.
1: <laughs> okay. He's retired, huh? <laughs>
0: He's a retired lieutenant, just retired around mm, three months ago. Going to
1: L.A. Huh? I live yeah. in San Diego, but, uh, you know.
0: All right, well, listen, I appreciate you spending so much time with me, and thank you so much again.
1: Okay, Michael, it was a pleasure talking to you, and good luck with your show. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye.
0: Joseph, fascinating, an absolutely fascinating man. I've read two or three of his books and I was only I had two or three more questions. My other question was, was there ever a book he started and wanted to continue to continue and just didn't have enough material and he left it? And the other one after that, I was gonna ask him what he reads. I'm always curious what athletes what other things they're into. He's only known as an author. So everyone, thank you for listening. I guess in the next couple of days we'll have a bunch of Kentucky players on and then we can tell stories about how Big Blue Nation invaded New York City. Everyone have a great night. Thank you for listening.